Peter Schwitzer? Oh, yeah, it's the guy I listened to when I made my first billion. He's one clever son of a... Five, four... We're online. The hottest internet station. It's time for The Switzer Show with the guy who makes getting richer easier than running up a credit card bill, Peter Switzer. Well, hello and welcome to The Switzer Show. I'm Peter Switzer. I'm joined by my colleague, Paul Rickard. Hi, Paul Rickard. Good afternoon, Peter. I guess uh, at the moment, a lot of people are pretty scared about this coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, do you have a bit of sympathy for that? And Most also, definitely. Uh, I, look, I tell you what, I walked into a lift the other day and it was filled with people who, you know, uh, made me think, this could be a risky lift. And I, I was looking, saying to myself, I really wish I had a mask on at the time. People are un- probably unnecessarily worrying, but the coronavirus is talking about people dying and these things can spread very easily and lifts are a great place to be. Now, we've seen a bit of volatility in the markets. We've seen ups and downs and uh, probably more in Australia than the US, but it's sort of on and on off again, I guess, mm. and we're going to f- probably the way that this is going to run until we really get a handle on the extent and yeah. just just how risky it is. Yeah, I'm very surprised that the Americans are so relaxed about it, Paul. You know, they, they, they had one bad day, but since then it's like it's, um, the economy is going to just wipe out the coronavirus. And I suspect the level of spreading isn't worrying mm. the experts. But, yeah, this is the sort of thing that no one really has any, any experience on. All you can do is look at history, and history says, don't worry, uh, there will be a bit of a sell-off, but then there's a nice big bounce back. But... At the moment, we really haven't had a big sell, have we? We haven't, and I guess part of that too is that the World Health Organization seem to be very slow to want to sort of declare mm. it as a, a global health emergency. And even so, they haven't gone the whole way from what I understand. No. It's sort of... Uh, How reliable is who? Uh, I have absolutely no idea. I guess it's a bit like bushfires. People probably all become experts in viruses and Mm. who and everything else, but uh, that's pretty normal, isn't it? Particularly in our world. (laughs) Yeah, exactly right. Now, so we're we're going to get the economist view, Shane Oliver. He'll talk about coronavirus, how it might affect the economy, bushfires, how it might affect the economy. And Shane is a guy who thinks that interest rates could go as low as 0.25% the cash rate. So I, I do hope he's wrong. Me too. Because the Reserve Bank yesterday, I think, did the right call. It held off mm. lowering cash rates. But, Three. you know, your sort of comrade economist in mm. arms, it, well, I don't know what the collective of economists is, whether it's a... You don't, know, don't say a bunch <laughs> of nick and poops. Please don't say that. A boat of nick and poops. <laughs> I'm going to think it anyhow. <laughs> I'm say it. But anyhow, you've you got a lot of comrades yeah. out there who want to see lower interest rates. They think all the rates time. are going to go yep. low. Exactly. And then we've got Dr. Ross Walker to give us the medical view on coronavirus. And he will tell us how scared we should be about this. Should be, I'm looking forward to getting Dr. Ross's view. And Ross is, without doubt, one of the most entertaining medicos I've ever encountered. And then we meet Mario Peroni, who is the president of the Queensland Investor Club. And I want to know what goes on in the Investor Club. Yeah, look, I've been to a meeting or two, but if you, have you ever thought about being a member of a, an investor's club? No. No, not at all. But, uh, but, but <laughs> that, was a, that was a very interesting answer, well, Peter. <laughs> well, the reason is I am an investor club. I actually effectively... The Peter Switzer Investor well, Club. Well, <laughs> what we do here at Switzer is do all the stuff to help investor clubs. Yeah. And I look, 
and I get to talk to the people that they then get in to do lunches and stuff like that. So, but if I wasn't me, yeah, I'd be a member of Investor Club any day of the week because I think they're a good idea if you're not me <laughs> or even you. Well, I'm cold. Look, that's, that's a half compliment, so I'll yeah. take it and we should move on. Let's move back to okay. the coronavirus. Okay, so without any further ado, our first guest on the program is the illustrious Shane Oliver, Dr. Shane Oliver, who's Chief Economist at AMP Capital. Thanks for coming on the program, Shane. My pleasure, Peter. Great to be here. Now, we, we need you because this is a very vulnerable time. We've got something called a coronavirus, which potentially could have an economic implication. What kind of economic implication are you expecting? Uh, that's a good question. I am expecting an implication. Um, I don't think it's going to be the disaster that some people think it will be. Um, one of the benefits of being around for a while is that you've seen we've seen a lot of these things over the years: SARS, swine flu, bird flu, Ebola, MERS, and oftentimes the pandemic that uh, gets steered by markets and some investors turns out not to be the case. In fact, invariably, that's that's not the case. Uh, my, my feeling is that, yes, this will be a bit of a drag on Australian economic growth in the first quarter, the current quarter of the year, simply because you know, we banned uh, Chinese tourists for at least two weeks. And if the ban continues beyond that, then you get a bigger impact. Um, so there, there is going to be some impact on the economy. But by the same token, I do think that the efforts to contain the virus uh, have been a lot faster than we've seen in the past. Um, that seems to be working to some degree. You know, the travel bans in particular, you know, painful as they are, they do uh, um, prevent these things from spreading. We haven't seen a lot of transmission outside of China. I know we hear regularly of updates in Australia that another case has been found, but the reality is that 99% of the cases have been in China so far. And in fact, the number of new cases announced outside of China um, has been in decline over the last little while, last few weeks. The other thing to note is that within China, 66%, two-thirds of the cases have been in Hubei province, which is uh, which is where Wuhan is. So yeah, to some degree, it looks as if the, the virus and the number of cases are being contained mainly to China and mainly to where the initial outbreak occurred. The other thing to note in all of this is that, yes, the number of cases has increased quite dramatically. We get this daily update. Uh, it's now over 24,000 cases. Um, by the time many people hear this, it's going to be more than that. Um, but it is worth noting that the death rate, the mortality rate, is around 2%, which is well below SARS, which was around 9%. And most of those people, in fact, 88% of the people who have died so far have been over the age of 60, and 70% of the people who have died um, had a pre-existing condition, a heart condition, diabetes, whatever, which is fairly similar to what happens with common flu. Um, quite, a lot of, quite a lot of people die each year, but um, it, it, its economic impact is not no, quite as not disastrous, but... Uh, on a pandemic scale. So I, I, I think, yes, there will be a drag on the economy, um, but I'm reasonably confident that this, this uh, crisis, this, this outbreak will be contained sometime in the next month or two. And as a consequence, the Chinese tourists will, will be coming back again probably by mid-year. And, and what about, um, Shane, what about the impact on things like our education sector, which is really one of our major 
I guess, export industries these days. We're hearing stories that one of the big universities in Sydney is talking about putting its semester back, you know, because, of course, the foreign t- students can't get here as well. Are we yet potentially in Australia? If, if let's, let's say this is a bit more, turns out to be more problematic than perhaps you're suggesting, are we in Australia just a bit more, because of our dependence on China, are we potentially a bit more exposed than other countries? Yeah, we are. That, that's true. 33% or a third of our exports go to China, obviously iron ore and coal are the top ones, but the third biggest export earner is education. And uh, uh, if you want to look at it in terms of the size of the overall economy, Chinese students account for 0.6% of our GDP, obviously their education uh, spending in Australia. And Chinese tourists account for 0.2% of our GDP. They account for 20% of our tourism export mm. earnings, but that's 0.2% of GDP. So if you add those two numbers up, if Chinese tourists can no longer come to Australia for an extended period, Chinese students can't get here to study for an extended period, then the hit to the economy is 0.8%, 0.2% from tourism and 0.6% from education. So 0.8% hit to the economy um, as a share of GDP. So that, uh, that, that's a rather scary figure. You know, it's only 1% hit to the economy from that alone, and that's, that's uh, ignoring the impact on you know, lesser demand for resources and um, lower confidence globally that might flow from a, from a full-blown pandemic. But I, I think they're, they're the sort of the scary numbers. The question is, is it going to be that bad? Um, and I tend to think that it probably won't be, that the measures that have been put in place to try and contain the virus will ultimately be successful and that uh, sometime in the next month or so, uh, things will gradually start to return to normal and then you, you see this sort of spring back in economic activity. Yes, there's a bit of pain in the very short term, but uh, economic activity eventually bounces back um, probably within the next three months and, and then we move on again. Okay. That's basically what happened with SARS. Okay, let's go to your bushfire calculations now. Um, do you think in the short term, um, December quarter and March quarter, GDP will be very low as a consequence of bushfires? And then are you then hoping in the latter quarters as the government spends, both state and federal, that will get a bit of an economic kick up, such that we see 2.75% their Reserve Bank um, tipped. And I'm tipping you won't agree with that number. I won't agree with that number, but... You're becoming, I, you're becoming curmudgeonly in your old age, aren't you, Shane? Like, oh, no, you're well, taking yeah, on the Reserve Bank every time. What's the other time you always agree, like a good young economist, but now you're a cranky old economist, you don't agree. Uh, well, sometimes you've got to disagree. You know, you can't go along with everything they say. They're not sure. always right. In fact, in fact, they have had a history, like many economists, of being too optimistic on economic growth for most of the last decade. They sort of start off talking about 3.5% growth, 3% growth, and it slows down. They have to cut interest rates, and then they say, oh, don't worry, growth will pick up next year. And then, of course, it doesn't happen, and it keeps getting pushed out. That's been the story of much of this decade. But I... I, I uh, I sort of mostly agree with the RBA that the bushfire impact will be temporary, as will be the coronavirus impact, and that will mainly show up in the current quarter, a little bit in the December quarter, but mainly in the current quarter because that's when the the bushfires really intensified over that um, late December, early January period. Uh, And it could knock, the bushfires could knock about 0.3% off economic growth in the current quarter. And when you put, say, that together with the coronavirus, which could knock 
say 0.2% off, it's quite conceivable that the economy may flatline or even go backwards in the March quarter. But history from these sort of uh, disasters, I guess, is that things rebound fairly quickly. There will be a lot of effort um, in rebuilding um, following the bushfires, and that's going to create a bit of a boost starting through the June quarter, which is why I could sort of understand why the Reserve Bank is sort of stuck to its forecast. It's probably going to revise down. I think uh, Philip Lowe has indicated that they'll be revising down their numbers up to the June quarter, but for the year as a whole, they're not revising down. Um, my view, though, is that I don't think the bounce back will be quite as strong as the Reserve Bank is allowing for, so therefore... I think growth will pick up a little bit this year compared to what it was last year, but I don't think it will pick up as much as the Reserve Bank's talking about. I think we're probably going to end up somewhere closer to 2%, which is better than what we've seen over the last couple of years, but not quite the 2.75% that the Reserve Bank is talking about. Okay. Now, I will tell you the question I asked the Reserve Bank Governor today at the National Press Club conference. I said to him, many of the members of the media out there luckily get to watch sports stars and movie stars, but people like you and me, Sean, we're stuck with watching the, the uh, Reserve Bank Governor, Phil Lowe. And that, that brought a bit of a laugh, and uh, he, he also felt for us as well. But the reality is people like you and I watch him, we watch the Treasurer, and we try and work out what they want. And I reckon, and I said to him, I think you don't want to cut interest rates again. And he kind of nodded in agreement. I said, therefore, what kind of a budget deficit do you want to see Josh Frydenberg throw out in May? <clears throat> now, he, he, he avoided, you know, giving an embarrassing number out there because, you know, he doesn't want to put Josh on the spot. But he did make the point that he'd like to see a lot more public investment by the federal government because public investment has been pretty, pretty low for, for quite some time. What's your view, Shane? Because you've got a 0.25% cash rate out there. If Josh does surprise and starts throwing a lot more money at the economy, would you pull back that 0.25% prediction? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you've already intimated that in your note today, Peter, <laughs> um, where you said I was sort of hedging my bets there. And yes, I am hedging my bets a little bit. If we get a decent stimulus from the budget in May and the Reserve Bank gets advance notice of that, then I think it takes a lot of pressure off the Reserve Bank. And I think that would actually be a better outcome. Monetary policy can help, but I kind of think it's like it's like fine-tuning. It's sort of the uh, the macroeconomic... Like if you think about gardening, if you want to mow, you've got a whole lot of grass to, to mow, and but you, you, you don't want to get your sit-on lawnmower out. You just get your little one out or your little um, whippersnapper out and give it a quick tidy up. Mm. Um, so that's a bit like monetary policy, whereas whereas fiscal policy is the heavy hitter. And I think we're at a point where we do need some more heavy hitting in the economy. Uh, monetary policy can help, but it's a blunt instrument. It can also have distributional consequences, which is economic jargon for sometimes saying things are unfair. Now, cutting interest rates are good for people with a mortgage, good for people with money in the share market, but may not help all Australians. Whereas if you do more spending on public works infrastructure, then you can benefit all Australians in doing that. Uh, or if you increase New Start, you can target it to particular groups of Australians in a way that you might regard as, as, as fairer. And you also get a more assured impact. You know, we can keep cutting interest rates all we want, but it's a bit like the old saying, you can let a horse to water, but you can't force them to drink. And I think 
fiscal policy is very different, though. If you, you undertake the fiscal spending, that spending is actually occurring. It has an impact. You can see the yeah. uh, the heavy equipment out there putting the public works into place, building the roads, building the dams and so on. So I think if there is a fiscal stimulus in uh, May, I'd welcome that, and I think that would head off the need for, for lower interest rates. And I think that would be more important. It's more important for the government to do that than, uh, than just blindly focus on getting us back to a budget surplus. Getting a budget surplus is important, but that's something that can be achieved over a little bit longer. We don't have a huge public debt problem compared to uh, the US or Europe or Japan. So we've got a bit more flexibility than they have on that front. So, yes, I think there is a strong case to ease the fiscal first strings come the May budget. I, I love the lawnmower uh, metaphor. I presume you're now being sponsored by Victor Mowers. Is is that the the latest <laughs> sponsor? <laughs> no, I've been discussions with them. I've got to send them this, this podcast. <laughs> I used to do this with Holden, but it, it didn't help. You know, Holden stopped making the cars, That's so right. yeah, it's that sort of uh, made my uh, positive comments about Holden's a bit irrelevant. Yeah, that's right. And, and also, you know, it, it made you look like a, an unsuccessful investor not driving a Merc or a BMW, uh, Shane, but I've never well, seen... That, 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 that's a cynical way of looking at it. That's a, driving a Holden just makes me humble. You know, just, yeah. I'm a humble yeah. investor. Who was, who, who, who was a, a, humble, a humble expert on the stock market? We want a, 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 you know, one who's highly successful. Filthy like, rich. Filthy no, 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 but the humble ones are the ones who get it right. It's the, it's, the, it's the ones who have big egos and feel the need to drive flash cars made in other countries yeah. that get it wrong. Yeah. Fair <laughs> enough. I'm, I'll, 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 I will ask people like um, Ken Nelson what kind of car he drives next time he comes in. All right, mate, as always, thanks for uh, shedding the lights on the economy. Economy, and we hope you're right on everything bar the 0.25% <laughs> interest rate call. All right, mate, thanks for joining well, us. Fair enough. Thanks, Peter. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Have Shane. And that was Shane Oliver from AMP Capital. And it's now time for a word from our sponsor. And the sponsor this time is the Switzer organization, Paul. Well, it is, Peter, because we have another micro cap conference coming up uh, in March. In fact, it's in Sydney on Tuesday, the 3rd of March. We're going to have some great companies, some CEOs of some great little companies sort of, I won't say selling their wares, but at least presenting, you know, doing the song and dance about what's happening in their company. Now, the great... I'm thinking the, of CEOs doing song and dance. Yeah. That'd be good. <laughs> it would be good. Now, the reason we selected this date, Peter, of course, it is reporting season. Yeah. So the companies are all coming out fresh out of their half-year or annual yeah. profit reports, or in most cases, many cases, they're still losing money, but they'll be able to talk about how they're going, talk about their financials, and give you a really good hands on terms of where they see their growth opportunities and just how much headway they're making. Yeah, and they they can't gild the lily because their their public um, reports are out there, so it's a great time to hear from them. So that's in Sydney on uh, Tuesday, March the 3rd. That's the Switzer Microcap and Smaller Companies Conference. Yeah, and if people want to know where to go, where do they go? They go to switzerevents.com.au. Well done, Paul. And the last time we put this on, a lot of companies presented and their share prices did really well as a consequence. Joining us on the program is Dr. Ross Walker, cardiologist and famous media medico, uh, but he is you know, a lot smarter than what television makes him out to be, and that's why we <laughs> want to talk to him when it comes to the coronavirus. Uh, Ross Walker, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Pete. Now, now, Ross, 
How serious is the coronavirus? Oh, look, I think it's a moderately serious disease. Uh, there's uh, Up to, to now, it's been around for just over a month. So the first case was December the 31st. There's been just under 500 people dying in China from the coronavirus. And the, the case of infection have jumped in one day from 20,438 up to 24,324. But when you look at that, when you look at the numbers there, if that's a true reflection of how many people have been infected, that's still less than a 2% death rate. Now, we, we always want for any, any disease a 0% death rate, but that's not possible. If you look at standard influenza, the death rate there is 0.3%. The very severe cases of influenza, some of the really bad influenza A's, the death rates are up to about 3%. Now, you look at something like SARS, which occurred in 2002, emanating from China as well, which is a very similar virus to the coronavirus, that had a 10% death rate. And another very similar virus called MERS, which is Middle Eastern respiratory syndrome, started in Saudi Arabia for bats infecting camels, then humans, that, that actually caused a 34% death rate. So the coronavirus is nowhere near as vicious as SARS and MERS, but it's pretty contagious and it's spreading pretty rapidly. And, and the point about this as well, it's really only dangerous in terms of risk of death and making people very ill if they have some other comorbid condition. So people that have existing heart disease, diabetes, cancer, if they get the coronavirus, then they can get extremely ill. But for, for young, healthy people, it just gives you a bit of a flu-like illness, you, a bit of a cough and fever for a few days, and then you get over it. Mm. So, Ross, is modern medicine getting re much better at handling these outbreaks, particularly compared to the Spanish flu, where was it 500 million affected and 50 million died? Yeah, that's, that's yeah. Well, look, look, the point is, we've got to be blunt about this. We have no treatment for the coronavirus. We're getting better at isolating and quarantining people. That's all we're doing for the coronavirus. There are some hopeful drugs on the way that may work against the coronavirus that have shown some success with SARS, because as I said, they're very similar viruses. But we don't have any antivirals, and at the moment we don't have a vaccination against the coronavirus either. But people are working on that, but that mightn't be available until 12 months away. So really it's not going to help our, our current epidemic, and it is an epidemic. Uh, Ross, pardon my uh, ignorance, but this is just one particular strand of the coronavirus. Is, is that correct? Yeah, that's There's been three coronaviruses that have affected humans. Now, we have to realise that, that the natural vector for the coronavirus is the bat. Those bats are dreadful animals. And, and they, they can cause corona, they can cause hendra, the lysovirus, they can cause a whole lot of nasty things. And so what the bat then does, it carries the virus around everywhere it goes, and the bat can then drop some of the coronavirus into a pig pen or into a, in fact in this coronavirus that's happened happened in the Wuhan seafood market where allegedly it was a snake that was infected by a coronavirus from a bat that spread it around so so yeah that, that's that's how it happens but this is only one of three coronaviruses that have affected humans as I mentioned before the SARS virus and the, and the MERS virus as well Ross can I ask this question Paul was going to ask you a question but I, I've been him to the punch Yep. Is, is like it seems to me all of these um, serious viruses come out mm. of countries where the health standards and the food standards 
are more akin to an underdeveloped country rather than a developed yep. country. Is that a fair generalisation? Oh, I think it's reasonable, but let's also not deny the fact that we have influenza go through every society every year, and, 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 and we live in a pretty hygienic society, and as I said, influenza is just as contagious and possibly in some cases more lethal than the coronavirus. But there, there's a whole lot of other... These are, we're talking about viruses, but there's a whole lot of other bacterial, fungal... Um, and what we call helminthic diseases that are much more common in underdeveloped nations as opposed to developed nations. But, but and a lot of people don't realise this about viruses. Just any virus at all, whether we're talking about the just the cold virus, I think, or the rhinovirus, or whether you're talking about influenza, or whether you're talking about herpes. Uh, viruses are not living structures. What they are are abnormal segments of protein that need a living cell to exist. So if, if, for example, you've got influenza and you cough and cough and cough and cough, it can only stay on a surface for a certain amount of time and it, then the virus just decays into nothing. So it's got to launch, uh, launch itself into a living cell for it to be maintained. So it is not a living organism. It's just an abnormal protein that gets stuck in things. So, Ross, that leads me into sort of asking about how you actually catch this because I'm a train commuter and every day I see more and more yep. people wearing masks. So... Yep. Just explain how this, how this, the transmission from one human to yep. the next. Human human transmission is is via respiratory droplets, and this is a sort of disgusting thought. But if you're if you're in a train, or if you're you're in a, a, a bus, or in a lift, and someone coughs, then a whole lot of uh, mucus goes out into the into the air. You breathe the mucus in, the little droplets of mucus in. You breathe them in when they cough near you. And that then can set up shop in your respiratory tract. So that's basically how it happens. There are certain viral infections like viral gastroenteritis that, that are from uh, a hand and mouth transmission rather than coughing. So it just depends on the type of virus and what sort of what we call mucosal surface, whether it's the surface of the lining of our respiratory tract or the surface of the lining of our gut, what sort of mucosal surface this virus hooks onto. And is the mask protecting the user from catching the virus or the user from spreading the virus or both? Yeah, a bit of both. And, and the best masks are the ones that we also advise people to use during the bushfires, the P2 masks, which are much better filters. Um, but even, even the, the surgical masks that you're seeing a lot of people wearing, or the designer masks people now wear, the, the, the black ones and whatever, um, they, they have some effect, but nothing is 100% effective unless you wear one of those big space suits that you see in those uh, scary, c- contagious uh, um, infection movies. Mm. Uh, Ross, uh, give us a, an idea of what the early symptoms are, because I'm sure out there there are hypochondriacs who, who are really scared out of their britches thinking, I've got the coronavirus. What are the standout um, symptoms? Well, the typical symptoms are just cough and a fever, but that's the typical symptoms of all respiratory infections. So, so just because someone gets a cough and a fever, unless they've been in contact for, from, with someone who has been in China in the last few weeks, they're not going to get coronavirus. I mean, it's just, you can't just get it just because someone else is sick. So there's got, there's got to be some chain of, of command, so to speak, of the virus being spread. Now, you're the only person I know who could answer this question. And, and why did the, the bacteriologist, if such a word exists, pick on poor old corona when they decided to name this virus? 
Yeah, I, I had no idea. And it's a virus, not a bacteria. So ba- bacteria are living organisms, whereas viruses are not. And so uh, I don't know where they get these names from. Uh, who, who knows? Sometimes they name it after a person. Maybe, maybe the corona is the virologist's favourite Favourite beer, who knows? <laughs> uh, well, unfavourite beer. It certainly is not going to be good for the brand. Ross Walker, it thanks has. for... <laughs> <laughs> Ross Walker, thanks for joining us on the program. Great to talk to you guys. And that was Dr. Ross Walker, cardiologist extraordinaire and media medico. Now, Paul, another word from our sponsor. And once again, the sponsor is the Switzer Organisation. Well, I'm getting really excited, Peter, because we're getting out here getting close to our Switzer Investor Strategy Days. This is our big conference mm. so which we take around Australia. Yeah. Uh, and I, look, the theme this year is about the length of the bull, the bull market. We, mm. we cut, March will mark the start of the 12th year of the bull market. And I reckon every investor is asking how much longer can it go yeah. and if it's going to run how much higher the market's yeah. going to go. And we're doing that in a year when we're coming into US presidential season. So uh, yep. this is a really important year for markets, the fourth year of, uh, of a presidency. You know, and, and we've started pretty good. We've had a few, <laughs> you've had, had a few things to deal with, like the virus and mm. a few other things. But I think there's a lot of people questioning about just what they do with their portfolio. Yeah, and I think some people are thinking, well, there's got to be a pullback somewhere along the line, but then after the pullback, will there be a rebound? And then that's the sort of the issues we'll be tackling with some of the best fund managers and, uh, and stock pickers in this country. And other experts. So they'll be able to share that with you now. It, it, it's in uh, Sydney on Tuesday, March the 17th. Yep. Melbourne, Tuesday, March the 24th. Brisbane, uh, Wednesday, March the 25th. And we're going to take it to Adelaide and, and Perth in, in late May and we'll come back and talk to you a bit more about that later. But uh, mm. they're the three big days and we've got a great roll-up of speakers, fund managers, presenters. And I reckon of all the conferences we do, I know I talked about the microcaps earlier, but mm. this is probably the numero uno and, um, mm. uh, and I find that we get such great re- feedback from our attendees about what they get out of it and just uh, mm. how much help it can be. And I think this is a really big year, so it's sort of, yeah. uh, it's really important. Though both conferences are equally uh, worth attending, Paul. Now, what do people go to? Yeah, now I always left out the, the plug line. Of course, right. where do you go? Just right. To learn more about those conferences, you go to Switzer Events, all one word, switzerevents.com.au. Well, everyone's always on the lookout for some inside information slash education when it comes to investing. And Mario Peroni is the president of the Queensland Investors Club. So Paul and I thought we'd have a a catch up to see, well, what goes on in an investor club? Mario, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Um, um, Thanks for inviting me along. My pleasure. How long has the club been in existence? Look, the club goes back to the... um the 70s, um, pre-my days, but apparently um, it was born out of um, um, after a crash they had back then. Um, a number of a number of investors got together to um, see if they could actually pool their knowledge and and um, be better prepared for um, for situations like crashes at the time. Okay, so what exactly happens at, at the investors club? Well, um, we. We're a non-profit organisation for people interested in investing. So um, we provide a forum enabling investors to share and increase their investment knowledge. And, and, and the way we do that, we, we hold monthly club meetings at the, at the Brisbane Club. It includes a two-course dinner. Um, and while we're having that dinner, we have a key guest speaker 
present on the night. And we then invite the members to actually ask questions after the guest speaker has spoken. So next Tuesday, for example, um, Peter Monkton, the Chief Economist for the Bank of Queensland, he's going to be our guest speaker. Um, and last year we had, you know, um, Ian McFarlane, Dennis Wagner, as well as various other company CEOs, fund managers and fixed income bond managers. Mm. Now, the Brisbane Club, uh, Mario, is a pretty swanky place. I've been there a couple of times. But it, it sounds like your club is mainly educational. There are other clubs where they pull their monies, but you don't do that. So you're more about sort of educating and, and working out together some ideas for each your fellow club members. Is that the way it works? Yeah, it, 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 it's basically um, to provide that forum. It, um, on the night, you, um, you actually, not only do we have the guest speaker, but then we also um, encourage members to to share their knowledge through giving um, presentations if, if, they, if they feel like doing that. So we actually have a number of um, members that um, will get up and give a, a quick five to ten minute presentation um, and at the end of the night, we end up having a round robin um, and we invite our members to briefly share their thoughts, tips, concerns. So, um, And then through the networking that happens um, at the bar before we actually start the meeting and during the, during the dinner, um, people can... Um, can access other people's knowledge and expertise on investing. Now, listen, um, Mario, you've been around for a while, and and I so have I. When people start <laughs> start giving their best insights on a particular uh, stock, um, it can lead to di- a division of views. Have you had a few uh, good old fashioned um, Barneys, not of a physical kind, but less of a mental kind, uh, when people oh. actually disagree with the analysis? Absolutely. In fact. Our club, you could probably um, firstly divide the club into um, probably three groups. Those that purely believe in fundamental criteria such as financial ratios like profitability, liquidity, etc. We have some people that swear by technical analysis and the, and the charts tell you everything and you know, some, some of the fundamental people accuse the, the technical people of just being reading tea leaves, um, and then you have those which I fall into where I believe um, both the fundamentals as well as the technicals are very important. So the technicals um, become your trigger to get in or out of an investment and the fundamentals sort of um, guide you in terms of the, um, the, 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 the overall investment itself. And what sort of um, stocks do you focus on, or does it depend on sort of different members? Is it mainly sort of blue chips? You're looking at local stocks? Is it sort of... Penny dreadfuls. Penny dreadfuls. I mean, um, I guess it's sort of... uh, There are lots of ways to invest, and I guess within the share club, you've got lots of people that have very different views. So just sort of give us a guideline on sort of what some of the stocks you might talk about. Yeah, um, because we have such a diverse range of members... um, we actually end up talking about, um, um, you know, the, the blue chips as well as the penny dreadfuls. Um, we actually have a competition um, every month where we um, ask people to try and predict um, which share will go, which share price will um, rise by the largest percentage. But we actually don't. Um, we actually don't allow them to, to select shares under a dollar because um, we find it's it, it's a little bit too hit and miss. 
Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of um, our technical um, um, analysis investors would probably um, deal with more of the um, more of the, the the penny dreadfuls, if you want to um, put it like that. Um, as long as from their perspective, they see that there's um, potential for a trade. If the um, if the charts tell them to get in, um, they will do it. Whereas generally the longer-term investors tend to stay away from the penny dreadfuls and um, tend to rely more on blue chips. Okay. How much does it cost to be a part of the club? Um, we basically have um, – um, th- th- there's a fee for the, the meal, so it's $56 per, per month, and that um, we're just recouping our costs for, um, for the Brisbane Club meal. And then there's an annual fee of, of – Another fifty-six dollars, which covers running our website, our liability insurance, and and giving a gift to to the presenter, and, and having a Christmas party at the end of the year. So, mm-hmm. as I said, we're non-profit, so we're we're not out to make a profit. We're just out to make sure we um, we can um, pay our obligations. Okay. Well, well, I hope you're telling them that the Switzer program is now on YouTube and it comes out every Monday night. Absolutely. Look, we're, I'm I'm a real believer in in partnering because at the end of the day, the people that turn up to the Queensland Investors Club, we're not selling them, uh, we're not selling them anything. We're just trying to um, say, look, um, come along, here's a forum to learn a bit more about investing, and um, and so when we, um, you know, when we hear about, so for example, um, we we were advised by the. Um, the mining forum. There's a mining forum in Brisbane, so they send us their um, um, they, um, they our members. They want to, if they, yeah, they send us the flyer and see if they want to attend. And also, a lot of our members um, do attend your Switzer group um, meetings because they're very helpful. And you know, members, investors are very lucky these days because there are so many avenues to, to gain a better understanding of your risks and rewards and potential investors investments out there yep. and you know your daily um, briefing is fantastic um, you have your TV channel and, and various other um, forums and, and I think they're wonderful for investors thanks for joining us Mario <laughs> no worries thank you very much that was Mario Perona who's the president of the Queensland Investors Club you can go to qvestic.com that's q-v-e-s-t-i-c dot com well, Paul, that's the show for today. What was the, the big lesson? What was the big take-out for well, you? Well, I think there were two things, Peter. First of all, I don't think people are as concerned about the coronavirus. I didn't realise that the, the death rate was only about 2% and mm. how that stacked up to SARS. I think it quoted about even 10%. Even normal bad influenza. Yeah, yeah. yeah, so I think, I think that was the first take-out. And secondly, I do hope uh, that um, Shane is wrong about interest rates. Me too. I, I just don't think uh, – I can't see any – real benefit of cutting the lowering interest rates further. So I hope the Reserve Bank stands firm on that uh, and the economists sort of lose interest a bit. uh, And and, and Josh Frydenberg puts together a good budget where they put money into public investment in the the really important stuff that will get this economy going. And and I'm really excited, Peter, because the other my third take, not out of today, but of course we reporting season, which of course is the time of year when most listed companies report their half-year or full-year profit. That's really starting to kick in next week, and we've got some really big results we can talk about next week, things like CSL and Commonwealth Bank. Well, uh, the, the last person who said he was really excited was Big Kev. So we've got Big Paul Rickard and reporting season. 
I'm just trying to think who Big Kev is, but I'll, I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it as the way it is. Big Kev, <laughs> excited about the the oh, bam, that, that, wasn't that, it? Bam, that Big Kev. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See you next week. <laughs>